Well, I remember the bus ride home from Santa Clara University in Santa Clara, California. Uh, it was my senior year of water polo, and we had been invited out for a celebration. Santa Clara was celebrating the opening of their new pool, and they had invited us out for a game. It was not a game we were supposed to win, but we were supposed to go and enjoy this new pool that they had put in place. I can still remember at the start of the game, as we're lined up, if you've ever seen water polo, the Olympics start on Friday, you should catch a glimpse of it, it's a lot of fun. But they line up, and the goalie is sitting in his net, and, and there's this guy sitting on an inner tube, totally drunk, screaming obscenities at our goalie. It, if, that, if that helps set the scene, the crowd, the stands are full. They wanted to witness a bloodbath. Well, the game was close. We get to the fourth quarter, and it, it's, we're still a little bit too close for comfort for the crowd, and they are kind of frothing at the mouth, angry and drunker than when the game began. They want to see a win, but we snatched it out of their hands. We snuck into that pool, and we snuck out with a victory. There was no post-game speech. There was no going over the game notes to show us what we could do better. No, no, we got on the bus, and and we, we took off. They were sad, and we were joyful. We were overflowing with joy. Well, this was a joy not lasting, as often happens with joy. Just a few days later, we lost uh, a home game to a junior college. <laughs> uh, quite embarrassing. So that, that joy we had, was just, it was gone. Uh, we did it in our home pool. I, I think this maps on a bit with joy in our lives. We often experience joy over things, but it's a, it's a joy not lasting. You know, we get the, the, the promotion we wanted, uh, then it's, it's consumed with more responsibilities. We finally go on that vacation we wanted, and it's ruined by weather. You finally find that friend you've been looking for, the one that like, gets you and understands you, and then they, they move away. Theoretically, the Trailblazers win an NBA title, and then they trade away all their best players. See, joy rises and joy falls, which is why you and I, we need a better source of joy. We need a source of joy that is not susceptible to the rises and falls of life in this world. Because if we can find that better source, if we can find that joy that doesn't fail, well, then we can keep going because we know that the joy we have is something that is actually out of this world. It's no longer determined by life's circumstances. You know, we've been studying this summer the, the Psalms of Ascent as, as pilgrims of Israel are ascending the hill to Zion to go and worship the Lord. And, and this morning we come to Psalm 126, where we will find that in order to find a better source of joy, we need to remember our salvation. We need to remember our salvation because when we remember our salvation, our salvation, uh, Christ becomes our source of joy, and he is a far greater source of joy. So I'm going to read for us Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. 
Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Carrying, uh, though the one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. So in order to find a better source of joy, we need to remember our salvation because Christ is a better source of joy. That's my main point for this morning. Is remember your salvation because Christ is a better source of joy. So first, remember your salvation. And, and we want to remember this in, in three ways. It's that the Lord has delivered us from evil. He has delivered us to joy. And he has made us a witness. So verse 1, when the Lord restore, verse 1 uh, is going to be that the Lord has delivered us from evil. So verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. So our pilgrim begins by recalling this restoration of his people. And we're not sure what they're being restored from. It, it could be captivity. Uh, it could be a famine. I, I, it could be that they're, they're coming back from exile. I mean, and I, I tend to think what, what he's talking about is restoration from some type of captivity. We can imagine as if some type of siege were laid upon Israel. And if you've ever read history and, and read about sieges, a siege is a, just a terrible and brutal form of warfare. You know, a siege seeks to achieve victory through the absolute deterior, deterioration of the morale and of the spirits of their opponents. In the Civil War, at the Battle of Vicksburg, Ulysses S. Grant, the general of the, the Western armies at that point for the Union, laid siege on this town of Vicksburg. And Vicksburg is, is right along the Mississippi. So it's, it's right there. It was, it was basically a portal to the Confederate's army. That They needed this town to link their two armies in the south. So Ulysses S. Grant lays siege on it. He does it in two ways. He has these gunboats in the, in the waters, and he's got his army kind of coming and hanging out so that they cannot go east. They cannot escape. And what they do is... is they conduct siege warfare. They fire relentlessly on the town with these gunships. And these, these guns that they're firing with, these, they're massive shells, 60-pound shells. And so as they're firing on the town day after day for almost two months, the ground is shaking so violently that the citizens' houses cannot even withstand the violent shakes. After the war, they, they find 500 caves have, had been dug into the, the side of the hill because that's the only place that people could actually find shelter. Over time, the, the, the dead started to pile up. Their stench filled the air. Supplies began running short. Dogs and mules and horses became less and less common to see around the town. A, a farmer even had to, to camp out because hungry soldiers would try and steal his vegetables overnight. It was terrible. And, and the question on everyone's mind at this point is singular. When will this end? How will this end? The weight of the siege crushes the spirit. It crushes morale. Hope is lost. None will come. And we can imagine right here, that is what the people of Zion, the people of Israel are experiencing, a brutal siege, sapping all their supplies. The same question is asked. How will this end? Well, we see the praise. We see the result. The Lord restored their fortunes. The Lord came in to rescue. 
the Lord chased back the enemy and he restored the fortunes of Zion. It was not the armies of Israel who brought victory. It wasn't their great strength that was on display, but the Lord's strength. And the response, as it would be for any people delivered from what is truly certain death in that moment, is, is rejoicing. They're, they're, they're in disbelief. We were like those who dream. It, it feels like a dream because, because they were going through hell. And now, all of a sudden, that hell is gone. It's, it's hard to believe, right? I mean, can it truly be gone? The nature of this is sudden. And it's as if all of a sudden, it's the terror that was on the city is gone and the people are out in the streets dancing and singing and laughing. They're celebrating because the Lord had delivered his people. This is a picture of captivity in a people in desperate need. This is a picture of us. You and I are, are people who have been in desperate need. We were not under siege by an enemy army, but, but really by our own sinful hearts. We were being starved spiritually with no one who was able to deliver us, and we, we could not deliver ourselves. But just like with the armies of Israel, just like with the city of Israel, the Lord had mercy on us. And, and actually, the Lord is the one who restores us and takes us out of our captivity of sin. Christians, through Christ, we have been delivered from sin and death. And we have been placed in Christ. We can say with a bit of disbelief or with much disbelief, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because you and I were wretches before the Lord. Our deliverance from sin, our deliverance from the captivity of sin is far greater than we could ever imagine. But God restored us in far greater ways than we could ever imagine as well. He took us and he restored us and he made us his own. He gave us great fortunes in him. He, God, God made us co-heirs with Christ, is how the scriptures define it, so that we could reign and rule with him. So, friends, when we approach the cross, when we, that, when we come to Jesus asking for forgiveness of our sins, it is, it is literally like a burden is on our back. And, and that burden falls off, and we no longer have to carry the weight of our own sin. John Bunyan puts it better in, Christians, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress. The narrator says, I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, which is the grave, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. See, we are no longer in captivity. Sin no longer has its hold on us. And, and the great weight of sin that you and I carried has fallen off our back. It's, it's in the grave. It's no longer being put back upon us. But I know it doesn't always feel that way. It's a rosy picture to paint of deliverance from sin and, and the weight falling off our back. But, but what about the experience we feel every single day? We feel the weight of our sin. That, that, that weight that you continue to feel of sin, is, it's different. It, it's different than what's being painted here. There, there is no removing you from the restoration that God has delivered you from. Our current struggles with sin are different because Christ has accomplished everything for us. But we, we will struggle in this life with sin. But because Christ has delivered us from the punishment that we deserve for those sins, we, we receive this deliverance. And, and the natural response when we realize all that God has delivered us from our sins, the natural response for us is the same as Israel. 
the natural response is joy. So you see that the Lord has delivered Israel from evil. He's delivered us from evil. And and we're going to go to verse 2. But that the Lord has delivered us to joy. From evil to joy. Look at verse 2, the first part with me. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. You know, joy is the natural response of the Christian who, who looks back on all that, that God has saved them from. But this is not a joy that, that we can command. I can't tell you just to be joyful. Like Eugene Peterson puts it well. He says, joy is not a requirement of the Christian life. It is a consequence. Joy is the natural result of the Christian life because we know how great a gift we've received. We've been delivered from sin. We've been delivered from certain death. We've been given the gift, not just delivered from, we've been given a gift of eternal life. And I think we understand that, that, that this idea of a gift and, and, and the excitement that you have over receiving a gift, that it produces something. It, it produces a response. Oftentimes, our, the gifts we receive produce a response of joy. You know, I, I think my niece understood this well at her sixth birthday party. I remember going, and, and she's, it's time for the presents, the exciting moment. And she approaches the first present, and she begins to unwrap it. And she's just welling with excitement. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. She goes to the next gift with all her friends around her. She opens it up, and oh, my goodness. And she, she fills the room with that, that joy and that excitement and all the oh, my goodnesses that I, you could imagine that only a six-year-old could do, that only a six-year-old could fulfill. You know, she saw the gifts that she was given, and it was an eruption of joy. She couldn't help herself. She couldn't be told to do that. She just, that's her only response in that moment was joy and excitement. Well, she's 10 now, or 11. Those gifts that she received all those years ago have certainly gone to the trash can or to the goodwill. But our gift from God, this gift of redemption, this, this uh, salvation, uh, it doesn't get thrown away. We don't give it to the goodwill. No, no. We hold it forever. It, it gets better. This gift of salvation, this joy that we receive, is, it's like the married couple who, who they get to their wedding day and they're so excited, but the wedding is just the start. I mean, that's just the beginning of their time together. You know, and, and my wife and I have been married for eight years, and, and the love that we have has grown. It's, it's deepened. Uh, the Carters, President, former President Carter, they've been married 75 years. That's like almost three of my lifetimes. I just can't imagine the, the depth that happens when you just spend that much time getting to know one another. And that's just how God has designed marriage. Now, now, it doesn't mean that, that there's not a lot of pain, that there's not a lot of difficulties, not a lot of sorrows in marriage. There is. But the more time you are together, the deeper that, that connection, the sweeter the relationship is. And I think this is why marriage is such a picture of our relationship with the Lord. That is how it's supposed to be for us with the Lord. Because just as a spouse grows to love and depend more and more upon their spouse, so you and I grow more and more to depend upon the Lord. And the more we depend upon Him, the more our joy increases in Him as we see Him for who He truly is. You could say that our joy in God's salvation doesn't wane like our excitement over birthday presents. No, it waxes 
It grows. It deepens. It, joy is like, it's like the exhale of the Christian life. As we breathe in more and more of Christ, we exhale joy as we know him more. This is what's happening is that our joy is maturing. It matures because our understanding of our sinfulness increases as we mature in Christ. We, we, get to, we, we start to understand that the longer you're a Christian, the more you realize how sinful you truly are. You know, the cross doesn't get smaller. The work of Christ doesn't get smaller in your life as you grow and as you walk with Christ. No, it only gets bigger. Because the more you walk with Christ, the more you understand the depths and how deep your sin goes. So you see that gift of salvation that God has given us and it causes you to be even more joyful as you reflect on all that the Lord has done for you. Now, I think it's a danger to go the opposite way. I think the tendency at times is for Christians to think lightly of their sin. Uh, a friend was telling me one time that his, his wife asked him, how often do you think you sin? Which he responded, well, every day. She said, really? I'm like a three times a week sinner. She was perplexed by his response. Well, a few years later, as she matured in Christ, she came back to him and, and told him how faithful of a sinner she truly is. Christians, the greater we understand the depths of our sin, the greater our joy will be in Christ. But remember, joy cannot be commanded. And if you're like me, that's bothersome. I love to dot my I's. I love to cross my T's. I want to know the three steps to a more joyful life. Just lay them out for me and I'll knock them out, right? Is it just, do I just got to read my Bible more? Do I just got to pray more? Do I just got to share the gospel more? What do I got to do? Tell me what I got to do. But that's not, that's not the picture Scripture paints for us. No, the, the way that we have a more joyful life is, well, I can give you three steps. We're going to know Christ. We've got to know Christ, and we've got to know Christ. We have to know him, because our joy cannot be commanded. Our joy is the response out of the natural delight we find as we reflect upon and remember how great a salvation has been worked inside within us. We can cultivate that joy by cultivating this love and relationship with the Lord. And the way we do that is to know Christ more. Okay, so at this point, some of you might be feeling bad. <laughs> this picture is not what you experience either. You, you don't feel joy. You don't, you don't feel like that's the, the response of your life right now because life is hard. And, and I, I want to encourage you to, to hang with me. I'm not going to resolve that yet. I, we've got something else we've got to turn our attention to, but we're going to come back to that in the, the second half of the chapter. But first, our psalm is going to show us what happens when the nations see and witness the great deliverance of the Lord's people. It causes them to praise God because of Israel's testimony. So, remember your salvation because the Lord has delivered you from evil. He's delivered you to joy. And the Lord has made you a witness. We're going to read verses 2 and 3. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. The nations begin speaking the holy name of Yahweh to one another. They begin proclaiming his good works to each other. This deliverance is so spectacularly clear that this was not from Israel, that the nations actually confess God's holy name. Yahweh must have delivered them. 
This is no small feat. We can actually think about them sitting around their dinner tables or reclining, however they did it. Or maybe they're in the temples, they're in the Asherah temple or the Baal temple. And they're whispering as the priest is reciting these incantations. Have you heard about what happened in Israel? Have you heard about what Yahweh, what the Lord has done for his people? And now he has delivered them. He has restored their fortunes. Having heard what the nations were saying, Israel picks up on this on the same theme, right? The nations speak of what God has done for them, and Israel responds and sings the same song. See, what I want us to realize is that the work of God in our lives is a powerful witness. The, the most powerful witness that we have is that Christ has delivered us from our sins, not of our own strength, but of his strength. And there's a natural joy that comes out of that. What I find fascinating here is, is again, that Israel picks up their song, the Lord has done great things for us. I think the song of the, the nations for us today happens when people come into our midst, and it's not that they see a bunch of people that have their lives put together, a bunch of perfect people, no, it's, it's when they come and they see genuine Christians who show love for one another, who are patient with one another. So much of what this church is, excels at is the way we show love to one another. We want to be genuine Christians because we are a different community than outside of the world. We in these walls are young and old. We are male and female. We are single and married. We are Asian. We are white. We are black. We are Hispanic. We make up this multitude of different people and we come together as one people, united under one gospel, under one message. Now, I remember talking to a young man who had been attending our church. He'd been visiting for a little while. He wasn't a Christian. He's agnostic at best and uh, very interested in the things of this world. Uh, But I asked him, you know, why do you keep coming? Why do you keep coming around? And, And his response was the community. I have never seen a community like this. What that young man witnessed should not be unique to churches. What that young man witnessed is a group of people who understands that we have been delivered from sin, that we have been saved from what we deserve, and we have been delivered to joy. What that young man saw was a church being a church, and that is a powerful witness to the world. You know, but it's not just non-Christians that come in and are, and are impressed by our community. It's, it's Christians. I mean, our, our church continues to grow by God's grace. Christians come in and, and they are overwhelmed by you all. And, and they are overwhelmed because as one person commented recently, she came and she left with like three invitations to lunches and dinners to spend time with people in this church. We are so good at welcoming people. Let's, let's continue to do that. I, I hope that any visitor here doesn't leave without multiple invitations to lunch or to dinner, whether you're a Christian or not. I pray and hope that you will be invited in people's houses. And I pray that pretty confidently because I know how this church operates. We, we're pretty good at that. You know, and one encouragement for me is when you do get together uh, and invite people around your table, just encourage one another in the work that God has done in your lives. See, because it's lives that have been truly delivered from sin that testify to ourselves and to the world that there is a better source of joy in this life, which is what we want to think about next. We want to, we're remembering our salvation, and now we want to think about why. We remember our salvation for Christ is a better source of joy in our life. You know, what we find in the Christian life 
is that we are people obsessed with the past. We are people always looking backwards because we never get over the gospel. We never get over what it's done in our lives. You know, we do this because actually once we realize that there is a better source of joy, we realize that nothing else will satisfy. So we keep going back to that well that's unending. We keep turning back to Christ and what he's done. And we seek to cease seeking satisfaction in other ways. Read verse 4 with me. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. It's strange. Our, our pilgrim has just made a difficult turn. You know, the first half of the psalm is really joyful. He's really excited. He is thinking about this restoration. The nations are singing songs about them. But now, all of a sudden, things have shifted. It appears that once again, the shadows of misfortune have covered Zion, have covered Israel. Zion has come into trouble. The people are once again facing difficulties. But now our petition for restoration is different. It's steeped in what the Lord has already done. You know, the, the first verse said that the Lord restored their fortunes. And now our, our psalmist, he picks it up again and he just says, Restore our fortunes again, Lord. Do it again. Do what you've already done again. And this prayer is accompanied by this illustration that that's, you can tell that, that actually he's praying for an immediate response to this prayer. He talks about the watercourses in the Negev, which the Negev is this barren desert that when the rains come, they come like a flash flood. It happens quickly, overnight. This land that was barren desert becomes this life-filled place. Uh, there's flowers and just tons of, of, of life in, in the Negev. And I think we have our own example here in Portland, uh, the, the waterfront cherry blossoms in downtown. Every year for about a month, if you're running downtown or you're walking downtown, you all of a sudden, well, almost overnight, the landscape changes. These trees that were once not much to look at become this pink dream. I mean, it's just an incredible sight. It's this sudden change from, from not much to amazing. There's so much to look at. And that's, that's, that's the prayer right here, right? Lord, our fortunes, restore them immediately. Just like these, water, or these cherry water blossoms. Just, we want to see them. Cherry blossom trees. Mixing the metaphors here. Lord, restore us. And, and you know, we, you and I feel this desire for del- deliverance immediately, don't we? You know, we experience pain in this life. We experience great sorrows. We experience loneliness. We feel the pressures of work. We feel the expectations of family. You know, we know that the enemy would like nothing more than to isolate us and to destroy us. You know, and rather than look to the one who has restored us, the temptation is to look for deliverance elsewhere, to find our joy in what we have around us. You know, the prayer that our psalmist prayed was for immediate relief. And so we pick up that prayer and we seek to answer it for ourselves. And we look for relief in our hobbies, in our jobs. We look for relief in our spouses. Whatever, whatever it is that you're looking for relief in. And I do the same thing. And for me, my relief that I look for is running. I love running. And I love just lacing up my shoes and getting out the door. And, and that might sound kind of weak, but here's the thing. I, I look to run to escape. I look to run rather than have to deal with the things in this life. I look to run because I know when I'm running and I'm sweating and I'm breathing heavier than I can keep up with, I'm not thinking about anything right there. It's an escape. And so I look for relief there. I also find relief in food and donuts. So I, you know, I've, got, I've got the other one as well. Uh, but, but I do love to run. 
So, so I don't know what yours is. It might be that you look for relief just by numbing the pain. I'm just going to turn off my brain. I'm going to try not to think about what I'm feeling. You know, it's our desire for immediate relief that, that causes us to look elsewhere in this life. Instead, we look to our pet addictions. We look to, to paths that lead, that, that, that they look to those paths in our lives that will give us an escape from the pressures that we feel. See, we don't want to wait for relief. We want to reach out and grab it. Right? We want to take it. But asking the Lord to give us relief, it's an act of releasing. It's rather than reaching, it's releasing. and saying, Lord, you know better. I can trust you. I know what you've done for me. Because the, the lesson our psalm paints for us is that seeking to restore our own fortunes is just an illusion. We can't actually do it. It's an illusion of control. We have to stop trying to control our joy. We have to stop trying to control our pain and the pressures of this life. And we have to turn our eyes back to Christ. That all the pain, remember that all the pain and all of our suffering that we go through is, is hidden in Christ upon the cross. Because it was at Calvary that Christ delivered us from sin. He delivered us to joy. You know, the cross didn't just get us out of hell. That wasn't its job. The cross got us life, gave us life. It gave us joy. Because when the weight of life threatens to crush us, when the weight of our sin threatens to crush us, it's Christ who takes us and he places us on his back and he carries us because we can't carry ourselves. We can't answer these prayers and these cries ourselves. Our comfort and our deliverance find all of their source in Christ because our present suffering is answered and, com- and, uh, and comforted by past accomplishments. Not ours, but Christ's. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we're calling you to. That, that our source of joy finds itself in the cross of Christ. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross with joy, looking beyond the cross. Because Jesus knew a different type of joy. He knew that the pain and the suffering he would experience would be life for you and me. He knew that the suffering he would endure was a joyful suffering. Because he actually had us in mind. He had those who he was saving in mind. He knew that the death he was dying was sufficient. It would, it would accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish, which is to pay for the penalty of our sins. Friend, if you are not a Christian, you have sinned against a holy God. You have incurred wrath against you that will be paid back either by your death or through Christ's death. See, what we're calling you to this morning is to look to Christ's death. Look to that because he is the sure source of joy. He is the sure source of our salvation. He is the one that can hold it and that can handle it. He is a sufficient source of joy for us. Look, I know, I know what it's like to find joy in the things of this world. And I know how fleeting those joys are. Friend, put your hope in a true joy in the one who possesses all joy, which is Christ. If you want to talk more about that, I would love to do that. I'm going to be standing at that back door after the service. I'd love to discuss this with you. So Christ and his salvation are the true source of our joy. But we recognize that in this life, sorrows and joy are not mutually exclusive. It's not that we're only feeling sorrow or we're only feeling joy. No, we're actually feeling joy in this life amidst the sorrows. Look at verses 5 and 6. 
Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. So we're given two illustrations in this moment. The first one is kind of short and punchy. The second one, there's going to be tears along the way, but the fruit of those tears will be joy. The second illustration intensifies the first one. The first one, so it's with tears, seems to be quickly resolved, returning with joy. But the second one gives us the same picture. And then instead of tears, our sower is weeping. He's carrying the bag of seed. And, and I, I picture, we don't even know if he's actually sowing. Maybe he's just walking along with his hand sunk in the bag of seed. Life is too sorrowful. It is too difficult. Too much weeping. Day after day, he walks his field weeping. Until the day comes when there's this magnificent harvest. It's magnificent and overjoyed. He picks up the grain, he binds it into sheaves, and he carries it away to celebrate. He displaying the great results of this harvest. You know, you and I are meant to identify with the sower in this illustration. Our life is full of both pain and rejoicing, sorrow and joy. And we're meant to feel attention. As as maybe you've felt throughout this whole sermon, this idea of joy and sorrow, we, we can't just have the one without the other. That, that we, we feel that this tension that, that Christ is the better source of joy, but life is really difficult. We struggle, we suffer, we weep. And, and finding joy is not as simple as reminding ourselves of the truths, like some type of uh, medication that will provide immediate results. I, I, <laughs> I can't just tell you to be joyful. I would love to. That'd be a lot easier. I'd love for you to just tell me to be joyful. If we could do that, life would be a lot easier. It'd be a very rational, probably unfeeling type of way to live. No, joy is experienced out of abundance. It's abundance looking at Christ. See, we just, we can't command it. We can't demand it in our lives. We can only truly experience it and remind ourselves of it because we are both sufferers and saints at the same time. We are both full of mourning and full of joy at the same time. And I think Jesus had this in mind when he says in John 16:33, he says in John 16:33, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. Take heart. I have conquered the world. You know, Jesus is courageous and joyful, right? Like you can actually be confident because of what Jesus has done. When we suffer, we look to Christ. And Peter was listening to these words, uh, but he says in 1 Peter 4.12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. Instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Peter tells us not to be surprised in our suffering, especially when it's for the sake of the gospel, but to rejoice, to take heart, because our, the great joy will be revealed. It will give way to joy. Weeping and suffering is a natural part of this world. And it's a battle for all believers to fight for joy in the midst of it. You know, we never choose to suffer. It's not a class that we want to take. No, God enrolls us in that elective for our good. He causes us to go through it for our good. And in those hardships, we're called to fight for joy. 
And one of the best ways we do that is what I've been saying during the sermon, which is we remember all that the Lord has delivered us from. We look back. We don't take our present circumstances. We actually look backwards to see all that Christ has done for us, all the ways that he's delivered us. And what we also do is we look to one another. The, the sower comes back joyful. Is he being joyful to his cow? I think he's being joyful to his family, to his community. Look, I was weeping. I was sorrowful. But I came back with these sheaves. Look at all this harvest. Look at what the Lord has done. He is coming back to share in what all has been done. And yet, and yet again, so we see just another reason why God has given us each other. And church... I've seen you do this time and time again in one another's lives. When people are going through troubles, you know, we were just praying this morning for Marilyn. We we're going to surround her as she's already expressed we've been doing. As, this, as other people go through troubles, and as they struggle and they weep, we come around them. The church becomes a church to one another. And, and friends, you've also done that for us. You know, we've, we've been here almost four years. In August, so be four years. And we have experienced a lot of pain in this church. Uh, just just the, the course of life. And time and time again, brothers and sisters, you have come around us to weep with us, to mourn with us. And you've been there also to celebrate with us and, and to remind us of all that the Lord has done for us and all the ways that God has blessed us. You've been patient with me a young, sometimes harsh or brash brother in Christ who wants to be a pastor. You know, you've shaped me. You've, you've taught me what it means to, to love Christ, to love this church, to love walking joyfully alongside one another. And, and my hope for you is that you keep doing that. You keep walking alongside each other. To keep walking alongside those who are suffering, those who are weeping. And we put our arms around them and we weep with them. We walk through this life with them. Keep being patient with young men who want to be pastors. But sometimes like a bowl in the china shop, we just we tend to break stuff. Uh, just encourage you to, to walk with them as, as I know you will. But I just want you to know this is so much of the reason why we can experience suffering and joy in, together. Because we do things together. We experience life together. It's why we can suffer in this church and encourage one another alongside it. It's why we can persevere together. Because we're not just sewing together. We're a family together. And as a family, we protect one another and we weep with one another and we celebrate with one another. You know, we've got two high school students coming to be baptized shortly. And on the one hand, what they're doing is publicly declaring to us what, they have, what, what, is, what has happened in their hearts, what the Lord has done in their hearts. And we are affirming their public declaration of faith by baptizing them. We're also bringing them into the family. We're welcoming them into our family. So Lucy and Jenny, as you come this morning, care for this church like your own family. Love this church like your own family. And we will do the same for you. And the Lord willing, this church is going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to see more and more people 
join this community, that are, that are attracted to this community. And, and with that growth is going to come growing pains, which are going to bring new tensions. But no matter how many people join this church, there's something that never changes. They're joining a family. They're coming in as fellow pilgrims, experiencing both the sufferings and the joys of this life. And as we come around them, and as we listen to them, as we hear their stories, and as we share ours, it's our job to remind them of their great salvation in Christ, their sure source of joy in this life. Friends, Christ has secured our joy in him for all eternity. We weep now, and we suffer in this life, but it's temporary. It will pass away. Just like the world, weeping and sorrow will pass away and it will be full of unrelenting joy, unending joy, no sorrows at all. It's, it's hard to even imagine, but it's a heavenly joy. It's a joy that is rooted and secured in Christ. And because we have such a secure hope in Christ, because we remember that Christ is the one who has delivered us from our sins, who has given us our salvation, and he is our sure source of joy, truly leaves us with one question to ponder, with one question to to think about. Where do I look for joy? Please pray with me. Jesus, you are our source of joy. We praise you for your great mercy that you would be so willing to give so much for a people who don't deserve it. But you did, Lord. You died for us. And you have given us life in yourself. Lord, we have you and you have us. Help us to walk in the joy of that truth and in the gift of your salvation. Amen.